Dave Robinson here, and I'm welcoming you to another episode of Bench Talk the Week in Science. We've got a great show for you this week. First, a story I prepared about a 17th century queen of Britain who was described as skinny, hunchbacked, and having buck teeth, but was still considered, quote, quite handsome, unquote. How did she do it? Then, Professor Scott Miller tells us what we can see on the night sky this month. There's Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, a meteor shower, and a lunar eclipse. And then finally, I wanted to tell you about one of the most beautiful sights to be seen in Louisville this week, ginkgo biloba trees. Have you ever experienced ginkgo rain? And did you know that ginkgo might be harbingers of global climate change? Well, stay tuned. Have you ever wondered about the cosmetics that people might have used on themselves back in the olden days? Have you ever thought about how a society's standards of beauty has changed over the centuries? Well, I just finished reading a research paper published by a Dr. Aaron Griffey, who's an art historian at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and this article really piqued my interest in this topic. The paper was about Henrietta Maria, a princess born in France in the early 1600s, who ended up becoming the queen consort of King Charles I of the United Kingdom. Now, I'm sure you know about King Charles III, who just acceded to the British throne in September 2022. You know, Prince Charles is now King Charles III. Well, we're talking here about King Charles I, who, with his wife, Henrietta Maria, gave birth to King Charles II back some 400 years ago. Here's some trivia about Henrietta Maria. The U.S. state of Maryland was named in her honor, and one of her daughters went on to give birth to a girl who grew up to be the maternal grandmother of French King Louis XV, making Henrietta the ancestor of most of today's European royal families. Dr. Griffey published a thorough 26-page analysis of what Queen Consort Henrietta did back in the 1600s to improve her looks, not just cosmetically, but in her iconography and in how she was depicted in portraits that were painted of her. Dr. Griffey's research paper was published in the journal Renaissance Studies in November of 2021. Let's start off with this quote from the article. It's by Henrietta's 11-year-old niece, who described the Queen Consort Henrietta at the age of 33. The fine portraits of Van Dyke had given me such an idea of the beauty of all English ladies that I was surprised to find that the Queen, so beautiful in her picture, a little woman with long, lean arms, crooked shoulders, and teeth protruding from her mouth like guns from a fort. Still, after careful inspection, I found she had beautiful eyes, a well-shaped nose, and an admirable complexion. She did me the honor to say that she thought me rather like her daughter. So pleased was I that from that time forward I considered her quite handsome. Now let's take a peek into Ellen Griffey's article to hear what she said about the Queen. 
Her beauty was widely celebrated and cultivated. Henrietta Maria's damask skin, redolent of roses and lilies in this period, was accomplished through physic and objects, and promoted and performed in observers' accounts and in portraits. She depended on writers, painters, and physicians to shape her complexion into its ideal smooth, luminous, sanguine state. This article emphasizes that a fresh and blooming face was more than skin deep, but was invested with political, social, and medical import. Her attention to her skin was not the simple vanity of a beauty-obsessed queen. Rather, it was central to the political, dynastic narrative of her elite status and fertility. Deconstructing the Queen's cosmetic practices highlights the contemporary emphasis on natural beauty, and yet a naturalness that was nonetheless forged by an entourage of attendants, distributed in her person and shown through contemporary accounts and paint. Did you hear that reference to roses and lilies? Well, these two flowers, roses and lilies, apparently embodied France and England at the time. Henrietta was born in France, thus she was a French lily, but married an English king, which made her an English rose. These two flowers end up showing symbolically throughout Henrietta Maria's life. Here's another quote from that article about this. In literature, lilies and roses represented the ideal facial coloring. The medical properties of the lily and the rose were described by ancient, medieval, and early modern authors, and these flowers were widely used in recipes for the skin. Well, we all know how much pressure there is on women to look good even now, well, there was even more pressure on Queen Consort Henrietta Maria back in the 1600s. To quote Dr. Griffey's article once again, For women whose social currency typically rested on marriage and children, facial complexion was a powerful mirror of quality and a canvas for enhancing the natural healthy beauty within. Within the context of elite marriages, the bride's complexion was widely scrutinized because beauty, health, and fertility were all intrinsically connected. It follows that the beauty stakes were exceptionally high for a queen who needed to be the fairest one of all. There were numerous commissioned paintings of the queen consort during her life, and in each one of them, the artist took great pains to depict Henrietta in the best possible light. The colors used for her complexion, the clothes she wore, the background of the painting, the other objects in the painting, they were all carefully selected to win the public's honor, admiration, and respect. And then there's the question of cosmetics. Now, a high-born woman at that time would not want to just brush on pink blush onto her cheeks. That's something only lower-class women would do. Apparently, any woman painting her face like that would be marked as a pander, bald, or a whore. High-society women were expected instead to adopt beauty regimes that improved the health of their skin. One recipe, for instance, was 
snail water, rose water, lemons, bean flower water, tartar, gum tragacanth, rice, fresh barley, milk, egg whites, and honey. All of these ingredients regularly feature in beautifying recipes, and as a formula, this would have clarified, tightened, and moisturized the skin, but not masked the natural color of the skin. Beauty experts at the time were also carrying out quite a bit of research on finding new combinations of treatments that would correct for facial discoloration or disfigurement from things like pox, pimples, scars, freckles, roughness, sunburn, rashes, and wrinkles. And believe it or not, two common plant products that were called to task were indeed lilies, they use the roots, and roses, they use the flower petals. They would dry the lily roots and dissolve the extract in rose water. Here's an example from this article that I can give you. Henrietta was only 15 years old when she married, but one time when she was 29 years old, and she had already given birth to two children by then, she got a bad rash on her cheeks. Do you want to hear what was prescribed for this rash? Well, it was called milk of poppy. It was fresh white poppy seeds and melon seeds infused overnight in rose water. Then the soaked seeds were mixed with camphor and mercury, which is terribly toxic, and applied to the rash two or three times a day. And from the sounds of it, apparently milk of poppy actually worked. Life in the British royal court during Henrietta Maria's time was not just about superficial things, however. Her life was tumultuous. She was unpopular for her French heritage and for her Roman Catholic beliefs. She survived three civil wars in England, the dethroning of her husband, the king, and his later restoration to the throne. He was later executed for high treason when she was only 39 years old, She lost two of her children to smallpox, and she lived another 20 years after the execution of her husband, the king, but ended up contracting bronchitis, moving back to France, where she died at the age of 59 after taking excess opiates to ease her pain. But let's get back to the topic of Henrietta's cosmetics. Dr. Griffey's curiosity about the culture of beauty during the Renaissance took her to a unique collaboration. It started when she noticed that many ingredients and beauty recipes she gathered from her scholarly studies of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century also appears on the packages of modern beauty products. For instance, rose water is still used in modern skin hydrating mists and sulfur is still found in some over-the-counter acne creams. So some of these historic approaches to beauty are still in use today, while others are thought to have been forgotten or abandoned, and some were just downright dangerous. And Dr. Griffey saw that there was a real lack of scientific, academically rigorous, lab-based analyses of these old-time cosmetic products. She teamed up with other researchers at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. There's physicists, and there's these two chemists, and there's another historian or two, all working together 
to investigate the science and history behind the cosmetics that were used hundreds of years ago. They are wondering whether they could discover the chemical compounds in Renaissance cosmetics that might still be useful today. And it's not just for women either. There are also Renaissance recipes for curing baldness and for growing better beards. But the challenge they have is how to distinguish between the useful versus the bizarre versus the dangerous ingredients. There was that mercury that was put into that anti-rash ointment. But there are other century-old beauty treatments that contain bile acids or calf hooves, the heavy metal lead, or the poisonous bryony plant. How can they keep these dangerous chemicals out and still have a recipe that works? These researchers realized that to get a better understanding of these different components, they would first have to recreate the original recipes. Thus was born the project called the Beautiful Chemistry Project. So the team started out by looking at beauty treatments that showed up repeatedly in numerous and various historical texts, like rosemary flowers in white wine shows up over and over and over again. There's myrrh powder in egg white, or the velvety covering of newly grown deer antlers mixed in bean flour. The chemists are now carrying out empirical studies to determine the exact volumes and ratios for each of the components of these historic recipes. And this is not easy because the old recipes were often inconsistently written and vague. Another problem is that some of these cosmetic ingredients were kept secret. And since many of the recipes were based on earlier sources, they also had to consult things like ancient Egyptian writings on papyrus and sources from the Roman Empire and the Byzantine and medieval days. So they had to take a very integrated research approach, combining history and science, laboratory and library. For instance, they didn't have access to the same genetic stock of rosemary plants that grew hundreds of years ago, nor the wines that the rosemary leaves were dissolved in. Plus, the descriptions were often short and vague, but they did the best they could. Once the researchers figured out how to make the concoctions that seemed consistent with their historic descriptions, they went about analyzing the resulting mixtures using standard chemistry tools like gas chromatography mass spectrometry, high-performance liquid chromatography, and ultraviolet spectroscopy. And what are the results? Well, it's still pretty preliminary, but take that rosemary wine tincture, for instance, that I mentioned before. In that, they identified chemical compounds that are indeed still found in today's skincare products, including soothing camphor, eucalyptol, and the fragrant alcohol called linalol. This suggests that the Renaissance tincture of rosemary and wine actually did, quote, make the face fair. It looks like it does that by toning and moisturizing the skin. Myrrh powder and egg whites mixed together are another example. Experiments have suggested that the myrrh draws out the proteins from the egg whites, 
while the egg whites extract resins, sugars, and volatiles from the myrrh. That results in a serum-like product that has antiseptic and anti-inflammatory properties and probably stimulates collagen growth. One of the chemists says, quote, It seems like there's a synergy between all of these different ingredients, and this is why it works, unquote. Eventually, the researchers hope to perfect their recreations and bring the products to store shelves, minus, of course, any unsafe ingredients. The collaborators on the Beautiful Chemistry Project think that people will want to go back to something that's natural, and they believe it'll be appealing for people to think they're using products that stem all the way back to the Renaissance. Until then... The beauty for the researchers lies in, quote, digging the recipes out and understanding them, unquote. So there you have it, the beautiful chemistry project. Historians, physicists, and chemists working together to winnow through aged recipes, looking for information about natural chemicals that could help us look ageless. Thanks to Mary Williams for playing the parts of both Queen Henrietta's niece as well as Dr. Aaron Griffey in that story. Now, here's J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College telling us about what we can see in the cosmos in the month of November. November brings with it cooler weather and earlier darkness compared to previous months in autumn. For the sky watcher, this can be both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because things happen earlier enough in the evening to enjoy with family and friends after dinner together. A curse because clothing layers make it uncomfortable. Still, there is much to see. Two points of light catch my eye in the southeastern sky as darkness falls. These are the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. Saturn is to the right or west of Jupiter. Though both are close in size, and Saturn has the addition of rings to reflect sunlight back to us, Jupiter is roughly half the distance from us at present as Saturn, making it shine more brightly in the sky. After doing so earlier this month, the moon will pass by each at month's end, Saturn the evenings of the 28th and 29th, and Jupiter the evenings of December 1st and 2nd. Speaking of the moon... There will be a lunar eclipse in the early morning hours of November 8th. And I do mean early. The eclipse will officially start when the outer layer of the Earth's shadow, the penumbra, first contacts the moon. That is, the moon in its orbit reaches the Earth's penumbra at around 3.02 a.m. Not much is noticeable initially because the sun's light is also falling on the moon's surface. The more interesting point begins around 4.09 a.m. when the moon reaches the umbra, the darker portion of the Earth's shadow. For a bit more than an hour, one can see the moon progress deeper and deeper into the shadow. At about 5.16 a.m., the total eclipse of the moon begins. From this point, the moon will remain in the shadow, passing through it, if you will, until 6.41 a.m. Now comes the tricky part. By this time, the moon is well over in the western sky approaching the horizon. Depending on how flat your western horizon is, you may only get to see part of the moon's escape from the umbra. Moonset is about 7.20 a.m., 
So for us in the eastern part of the United States, the eclipse is over, but over only because we can no longer see the moon once it sets. But the lead up to that will still be a leisurely watched event. One is up for watching the lunar eclipse. Another planet of note will be shining in the western sky, the planet Mars. Mars is rising around 10 in the evening, and on this night will trail the moon across the sky. Located between the horned stars of Taurus the Bull, it is already brighter than many of the stars in the sky at this time. It outshines, for example, the brightest star in Taurus, Aldebaran, as well as Betelgeuse over in Orion. So spotting it should be not too difficult, even if it were not trailing the moon this particular evening. But if you are not sure, the moon will pass by it the evenings of November 10th and 11th. Meteor showers are another easy phenomenon to watch. The Leonid meteor shower is active beginning November 6th and continues through the end of November. The peak activity is overnight on the evenings of November 16th and early morning hours of the 17th. On this night, the moon will be about last quarter phase, rising in the eastern sky from 1 o'clock on, so it may cut down on some of the meteor count, since most meteor activity is best seen before sunrise when we are more directly turned in the direction of the swarm of comet dust that causes them. Most meteor showers occur because Earth is passing through the path of a comet, sweeping up debris left by past visits. The debris behind the Leonids are from the comet Temple Tuttle. Left behind each time this comet returns to the inner solar system, every 33 years. Yet it is not the fresh material we see from the comet, but debris from earlier returns. The expectation under dark skies, away from city lights, would be about 15 meteors per hour, and perhaps an occasional weak outburst when the Earth passes near a debris trail. Sometimes one can see a bright meteor. Some of those can even show a persistent train of meteor light. When I plan one of these trips into the night to see a meteor shower, I take along a comfortable chair or even a cot to make it easier on the neck. A blanket on the ground would do, but there is always that damp dew to deal with if a blanket is used. But it is an option. Once comfortable, I simply scan the sky slowly, chatting with any others that want to share in the adventure. This is a good time to look for constellations that may be visible in the sky. If there are planets above the horizon, one can scan for those as well, all while scanning the sky for meteors. Many is the time that I have been out with others, distracted by a planet or a constellation that I wanted to look for, and heard them shout out, there goes one, and I was looking in the wrong direction. So a slow scan, noting what is above my head while not straying too far from the task at hand, is most successful in finding this elusive quarry. Thanks, Scott. And there's something else spectacular to look for during the month of November, but this one you can see best during the daylight hours. Here's how to find it. It's autumn in Louisville, and the sky is filled with a myriad of leaf colors. The ground is coated in yellows, oranges, and reds, leaves of all shapes and sizes. Well, one of my favorite trees to watch this time of year is Ginkgo biloba, the maidenhair tree. Ginkgos have a fascinating leaf senescence pattern, and they appear to be harbingers of global warming. Now, if you aren't quite sure what ginkgo looks like, 
I can tell you that the trees can be quite tall. They have thick leathery leaves that are shaped like a fan. And they've got veins that run parallel to each other, the length of the leaf. But at this time of the year, you can spot ginkgo from 50 feet away. And that's because they have extremely bright yellow leaves. They're gold, really. Another characteristic of ginkgo is that the branches are quite far apart from one another, but the leaves cling very close to each branch. So this time of year, you'll see golden fingers protruding from the trunk of the tree. Oh boy, I could talk about ginkgo biloba all day, really. But right now, there are two things I want to point out to you. First, it's that ginkgo defoliation is fast and synchronous. You know, most deciduous tree like maple and oak, they drop their leaves in the fall slowly over a long period of time. It could take weeks for all the leaves to fall off. But as long as you don't have too many windy days... Ginkgo trees drop their leaves all at once. It's called ginkgo rain. And if you are lucky enough to see it, please stop and appreciate what you're experiencing. I've only experienced ginkgo rain one time myself, and it was a glorious experience. I stood under the tree, and it was literally raining leaves. Well, not literally, but you know what I mean. Typically, the entire tree is denuded in one day. And by the end of that day, the ground is surrounded by a beautiful carpet of gold. Now, I've done a pretty thorough search through the scientific literature about the physiology behind this phenomenon, and I couldn't really find anything, so someone needs to do some research. All I can tell you is that it's a result of a highly regulated process involving an 11-cell layer of tissue where the leaf petiole is attached to the stem. It's called the abscission zone. Now, hormones start the process by inducing enzymes called cellulases, which break down the plant cell walls, cellulose, and pectinases, which dissolve the glue that holds plant cells together, the pectin. And of course, hormone production is influenced by the environment, temperature patterns, day length, sunlight, frost, moisture, things like that. And in most deciduous trees, like maple and birch, the leaves will be knocked off the tree by a combination of factors like gravity, wind, and rain. But in ginkgo, it's basically gravity that finally causes the leaf to fall, assuming there's not a lot of wind. And it happens in unison over a very short period of time. It gently rains leaves. The other thing I wanted to tell you about annual leaf dropping ginkgo is that apparently it's being delayed by climate change. For instance, in New Hampshire, there's one ginkgo tree that lost its leaves on October 24th in 1977. But since that time, the date has shifted steadily to November 9th in 2017. That's a 16-day delay in ginkgo rain. Perhaps not coincidentally, Average autumn temperatures increased by 2 degrees during that time. Ginkgo leaf drop in Japan at 64 different locations was 8 days later in 2000 than it was in 1953, while annual air temperatures had increased by 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit. And using data from 54 different locations in South Korea, 
Ginkgo leaf drop was closely correlated to air temperature and was dropping their leaves nine days later in 2007 than they were in 1989. So the date for ginkgo rain seems to be later and later into the autumn of each year all around the world. Well, you know, ginkgo trees are often referred to as a living fossil because they've been on earth virtually unchanged for the past 170 million years. Yeah, they go back to the Jurassic period when Tyrannosaurus were roaming the planet. Are ginkgos an example of a canary in the coal mine warning us about global climate change? Could they go the way of the dinosaurs? Or for that matter, could we? Well, that's our show this week. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science right here on Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you and enjoy the weather. <music>